we are continuing in Acts chapter 18. Turn there. Tonight's sermon is called The Watchman of Corinth. Uh, 13? 18. 18. 2 Timothy 3.16 says, uh, All scripture is inspired by God. And the original text says, like, God, it means God breathed. And it's, uh, it's profitable for doctrine, reproof, correction, and instruction in righteousness. And so we're going to see Paul sort of do all of those things, like use scripture for doctrine, reproof, uh, correction, and instruction. And he's going to, he's going to kind of act as the watchman of, of Corinth. So that's what we're going to be talking about tonight. We are in verse 1 of chapter 18. It says, after these things, and these things being, if you remember last time, they were in Athens. Uh, he preaches from Mars Hill, and like a couple people get saved, but some people mock him. Some people are like, oh, yeah, like tell us more new stuff. They're like obsessed with hearing new things. And so they want to hear more, and it's interesting. It, it says in verse 33 of, of 17, the so Paul departed. It's just sort of a different thing. Normally when people want to hear more of what Paul has to say, more of the scriptures, Paul sticks around. He stays longer. He makes them the priority. But here in Athens, instead of doing that, he leaves. And so we're, we're going to talk a little bit more about that as we, as we continue. But he's leaving Athens. And it says, and went to Corinth. Now, what we've been doing the past few times is showing pictures of these real places and, and talking about the actual place and looking at what the scripture has to say. I have been to ancient Corinth. I'm going to spare you the pictures because it's super cool to walk around and see like where Paul walked, see the ancient city. It's not unlike some of the other pictures and cities we looked at where it's like a modern city sort of sitting on top of the ancient one. Ancient Corinth is like a pile of rocks. And it's really cool to be there and see it because they've done some excavating and they can tell where, where these different buildings were. They've found a lot of signs and, and stuff like that. But when you look at the pictures, it just looks like a pile of rocks. So uh, I recommend if you're ever in Greece, check it out. Go and look at it. Um, something that struck me about Corinth was the church there that Paul is about to start where the church stood and was for a long time. It's literally like across the street from a massive temple to Apollo. And it just was like, Oh, this is so interesting. And there were a lot of other temples, just like in the other Greek cities that we have been talking about. There's just temples and idol worship everywhere. But at Corinth was a, a tough place. You can kind of read through first and second Corinthians. Paul writes those letters later, but a tough place to be a Christian because there's so many weird things going on around you and there's just like a lot of bad influence. And so Paul is trying to correct them in those letters because it really was like, it was a big city, but it was also like kind of close quarters with a lot of other different kind of mindsets. So uh, that's something that struck me while I was there. And yeah, it was a big city. It was up on a hill. Proverbs says, a city on a hill cannot be hidden. It's like one of those rich, big, prominent cities. And it's interesting, actually. I think I've talked about this before. But Paul 
typically he'll, he'll go to like the bigger cities and that's where he'll, he'll start preaching. And that's kind of a tactic that he uses is he goes and he preaches in the city because people have to come to the city for commerce. So you reach a lot more people when you go to a big city. So that's what he does. That's ancient Corinth. As we continue in verse two, it says, and he found a certain Jew named Aquila born in Pontus who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to depart from Rome and he came to and he came to them so because he was of the same trade he stayed with them and worked uh, and and worked for by occupation they were tent makers so we learn a little something about Paul here, that he was a tent maker before he became Paul the Apostle. He meets these people who have that same trade. He has a lot of stuff in common with them, and he moves in with them while he's staying in Corinth. And something that I just want to talk about briefly here is that God values uh, hard work. And that's that's a, a theme throughout the Bible that, like, God likes hard workers. I've said before that, like, the, the reason that I think that God, that Jesus, when he came, chose fishermen is because those were some of the hardest, work, hardest working guys in that time. Like, these were just, like, super hardworking guys. They took their job seriously, and they took their ministry seriously when Jesus called them. Hard work is something that I don't think is taught enough in the church, and I'm mentioning it because God does not value laziness or pride, which is obviously the the opposite of of hard work pride works into laziness sometimes because sometimes a minister will sort of say he'll go into place and he's going to be a, a missionary or a minister to a place and he'll sort of put himself up high like i'm too important to like work or do any of the manual thing like you plebeians go do the work and i'll just share the word of god and he'll put himself up on a pe- on a pedestal so Sometimes he's being lazy and pride works into that so that he can kind of get out of the hard work. Uh, and that is not valued by God. That is not a godly thing. And other ministers, I, I've seen people going into ministry or into mission to become a missionary literally because they don't want to work. Like they don't want to get a job. They don't want to swing a hammer. They don't want to do manual labor. They don't want to sit behind a desk. They don't want to get a job, and they're a little lazy, and so they think, well, if I just do this, then I can, like, get people to support me. And it's a sad thing, but it, it's a real thing. Like, you, we see that happen in the church, and I'm not trying to poke and prod at, 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 like, our family, but at the same time, we just need to correct. Again, that's what Scripture is for, correcting these things. And there is a lot of stuff about resting in the Bible, and sometimes a lazy person will grab on, oh, look, we're supposed to rest in Jesus, and it's like all about rest. And it's like, no, there's a ton about working hard also. There's that balance of Scripture, because some people are, like, really into working, and so they're going to go out there and work hard, they're going to do their best, and they need to be told, hey, you need to rest. Like, that's why God created the world in six days on the seventh day he rested because he needed rest but he wanted to set that as a as a way for us to see oh well god rested i should rest too and and it's a way for us to remember that he created everything and it's a way that we need to regenerate and and make sure that we're resting but 
we also need to not go too far into that rest, right? We, the, the balance of the scriptures is also like, don't just sit around, like be active. The Proverbs are full with a lot of teachings about the lazy man, the guy who goes outside and is like, oh, it's going to rain, so I guess I'm just not going to work. He makes excuses. He tries to get out of work. He, he just is a lazy man, and that is rebuked over and over in Proverbs and the rest of Scripture. So God values hard work, and he, he hates pride, and he does not value laziness. So we need to learn to have a balance of these things where we work really hard so that we can enjoy the rest. And that's sort of the biblical view of those two things is, yeah, work really hard and then enjoy that stuff. Like rest in that. Your your rest is going to be more sweet when you work hard for it. So I just wanted to, to sort of detour on that point a little bit here because we see Paul not going into a place and saying, I'm going to give you guys this great news and you guys need to serve me and I don't need to do anything. He's never that way. He says in some of his other letters, like, hey, I didn't go in and ask anything of you. I went in, I worked for my own food. I did like, I did all I could to be helpful and serve you. And I brought, I also brought you the good news. Like that's kind of his jam. And that's what he's doing here is he's not just going in trying to get clout. He's literally trying to bring the truth, but he's also trying to help the people who he's living with. Like, Hey, let me help you make tents. It's what I do. So I can, I can be helpful here. And so he's not afraid of hard work and he's getting into it. So in verse four, we continue. He reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and persuaded both Jews and Greeks. Keep an eye on that word persuaded. Verse five, when Silas and Timothy had come from Macedonia Remember, he was waiting in Athens for them to, to come. He, they did not meet him in Athens, so he went on to Corinth. They now meet him in Corinth. Um, and when they came from Macedonia, Paul was compelled by the Spirit to testify to the Jews that Jesus is the Christ. But when they opposed him and blasphemed, he shook his garments and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I am clean. For now... From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. Now, the reason I said to, to notice the word persuaded here is that there's a time to persuade and there's a time to stop persuading. We talked about this last time briefly, that in Athens, people wanted to hear more of what Paul had to say. He wanted to hear more about this Jesus because it was new to them and they were obsessed with the new and they were kind of worshiping knowledge and that's all that they wanted. They just wanted to collect a bunch of knowledge and they thought any knowledge is good, which is not true. Not all knowledge is good. And so they go and they're like, oh, we want to hear more. We want to learn more. We want this, this knowledge. And so Paul leaves, like, like we mentioned in the beginning, he he doesn't say, oh, you want to hear more? Great, I'm going to stay and I'm going to continue to persuade. I'm going to continue to reason in the scriptures. Instead, he leaves, which is different from the other times people want to hear more. And that's because they were just seeking that new information. They were just seeking that knowledge. They were not actually seeking the truth. They didn't want to hear so that they could believe. They just wanted to hear more new stories. And so Paul's like, this is not... Like, there, there comes a point where you kind of have to say they're not actually interested in Jesus. They're not actually wanting the truth. They just want to collect knowledge. 
And so he leaves. Now, here, what I'll say is that when people do give you an ear and they're actually seeking truth, like that's when we reason from the scriptures, that's when we continue to persuade, as we see Paul here doing, where every week he's going into the synagogue. It says that he um, reasoned in the syn. Yeah, he reasoned in the synagogue, so he's reasoning from the scriptures in the synagogue every Sabbath. So week after week, he's going, he's persuading, he's reasoning with them because they're giving him an ear. They're giving him that opportunity. So he's like, great, let's like, let's do this. So when they're giving you that ear, that's when you are free and should be, all right, let's persuade. Let's, let's actually like unpack this thing. And people are like, oh no, I don't really know about that. Okay, we'll work in persuading, trying to like show the truth of the scripture, not just be like, well, I told you I'm out of here. Like, that's not what I'm saying, but here is, is that thing when it's okay and good to stop persuading is when people mock and blaspheme, which is what happened here. And when they do that, that's when it's time to go. They opposed him and they blasphemed. And so he does what we've seen him do before. He shakes his cloak. He shakes the dust off his cloak. And then he says this interesting thing where... Your blood be on your own heads. I am clean. And so he just shakes the dust, says, you're rejecting, you're persuading, I'm done. Or, or, or you're, you're rejecting and blaspheming, so I'm going to stop persuading. And he, he just says, I'm out of here. And when somebody is, is blaspheming, there's kind of, sometimes that's the only way to do it. And I was at a, the coffee shop. Uh, a few months back, and this guy was, he saw my Bible, came over and started talking to me. And I soon found out, figured out that he wasn't coming over because he was like interested in learning about the Bible or wanted, oh, oh, cool, the Bible. He was looking for a fight. Like he came over like, all right, let's do this. <laughs> and he was like into a lot of really weird stuff. He was kind of one of those guys who goes around and is, you know, buffet style grabs beliefs from this religion, beliefs from that religion, beliefs from this religion. And he was currently like going to some like Jewish, uh, I don't know if it's a synagogue or just like a learning center, but he was like unpacking Kabbalah. And so he was really getting into Kabbalah. If you don't know, it was like kind of like a, a mysticism part of Judaism. So it's like not Judaism. It's just like take some of the thoughts and then it kind of twists them into this sort of mystical thing. So anyway, he was uh, going on and on about things, and I was, like, kind of pers- trying to persuade and say, no, 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 look at this verse over here. And so he, like, had certain things in the Bible that he was using, but then he's like, yeah, but this is, like, all, oh, this doesn't matter. That doesn't, that's not true. And it's like, well, you don't get to decide what's true. Either this whole thing is true or it's not. If, if this is the word of God, then it guides us. God guides us through his words and that's how we live our life. We can't say, well, this is true and this isn't just because I don't like it. That p- puts us in God's seat, us in the judgment seat and says, well, I like this. I don't like that. Therefore, this is true and this is not. No, there is either truth or there is not. And so we were going on for a while and he started getting, you know, frustrated. And it's at one point he was like, well, the Bible says this over here and this over here. And so what the F is it? Like kind of was like, all right. And so I was getting angry and 
like I wasn't like sinning in my anger, but I was kind of like, all right, dude, like this is, you have gone too far. And that's what, that's what I told, uh, eventually I just said, you are now blaspheming the word of God. And that is, that is wicked. Like if you continue to look at the Bible look at scripture, the way you're looking at it, the way you're approaching it in order to get whatever you want out of it, you are I don't know exactly what I said, but I would say, I think I said, like, it's not going to end well for you. I may have said, like, you're on your way to hell. But I put the warning out there and said, if you're, you, you study scriptures, you have access to the Bible. If you study it and literally just seek the truth, like, you will find the truth. But you, ca- you can't keep coming at it like this. And I was like, so this is like, that ends our conversation. I'm not going to sit here and listen to you just blaspheme the word of God. And he was kind of like taken aback. And so I left. And so I tell you that because sometimes it's, that's all you can do. If somebody is like coming, looking for a fight, they're not seeking truth. They're just out there to like bash the word of God. It's like, you know what? Shake the dust. You're rejecting, you're blaspheming. I'm out of here. And the interesting thing about what Paul says here where he shakes the dust, as we talked about, Jesus said, he told the 70 to do that. If they, if he, you go into a city, they don't believe, shake the dust from that city off. It's going to be worse for that city in the day of judgment than for Sodom and Gomorrah. Like it's that is a wicked city. And that is a symbol that you, you are clean, basically. But he also, Paul basically quotes Ezekiel here, where he says, your blood be on your own heads. I am clean. So keep your finger here, but we're going to go to Ezekiel chapter 33. Ezekiel 33. Verse 1. Again, the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, speak to the children of your people and say to them, When I bring the sword upon a land and the people of the land take a man from their territory and make him their watchman, when he sees the sword coming upon the land, if he blows the trumpet and warns the people, then whoever hears the sound of the trumpet and does not take warning, if the sword comes and takes him away, his blood shall be on his own head. He heard the sound of the trumpet, but did not take warning. His blood shall be upon himself, but he who takes warning will save his life. But if the watchman sees the sword coming and does not blow the trumpet and the people are not warned and the sword comes and takes any person from among them, he is taken away in his iniquity, but his blood I will require at the watchman's hand. So we see a little bit of how God is going to judge certain things here. Uh, some a, a watchman in the watchtower, he's supposed to warn the city. If he does not warn them when he sees violence coming, and the people who die, God says, I'm going to judge that watchman for the deaths of the people he should have warned. Verse 7, So you, son of man, God is speaking to Ezekiel here, I have made you a, you a watchman for the house of Israel. Therefore, you shall hear a word from my mouth and warn them for me. When I say to the wicked, O wicked man, you shall surely die, and you do not speak to warn the wicked from his way, 
that wicked man shall die in his iniquity, but his blood I will require at your hand. Nevertheless, if you warn the wicked to turn from his way, and he does not turn from his way, he shall die in his iniquity, but you have delivered your soul. So, the reason we're looking at this is because that's basically what Paul is quoting when he says, my hands are, he shakes the dust like Jesus said, and then he says this thing about, I'm clean because I have given you the warning and you have rejected it. Right? And he says, your blood be upon your own heads. So he's saying this thing that's totally directly out of Ezekiel. But the thing is, he's not just saying it out of frustration. He's not just saying it purely out of anger. He's actually saying it as a warning and doing this thing as a warning because there is still hope for the people that you rebuke. And even the guy in the coffee house that I was telling you about, like a couple of weeks later, I guess Johnny got in a conversation with him. Really? Yeah. Not knowing it was the same guy. Didn't know anything about it. Uh-huh. And then, uh, like a month or two after that, Ben got in a super long conversation with the same guy. And I guess he was, like, super receptive to what ben, ben had to say. So, I don't know where he's at, but what I will say is, when that rebuke comes, we don't just say, you're going to hell, and then, peace out. <laughs> that rebuke is meant to try and shake them out of their wickedness and and pull them into the love of God. There is still hope there, as we see when we continue reading on in verse 7. It says, And he departed from there and entered the house of a certain man named Justice, one who worshipped God, whose house was next door to the synagogue. Then Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed on the Lord, With all his household and many of the Corinthians hearing, believed, and were baptized. So, Paul says, I'm just going to go to the Gentiles now. Shakes the dust off of him, says, your blood's on your head. And Paul leaves the synagogue and goes right next door to this, the Bible would call him a proselyte. He's a Gentile, but he is, he believes in the God of the Bible. He's following, he's, he's acting as a Jew. Right, and he goes into this proselyte's house, and he is actually making a really big statement by doing this. Because if you remember back when Peter had that vision about the animals, and then God basically says, Don't call unclean something that I've called clean, and that's when God sort of is showing, I'm making room for the Gentile nations. And Peter makes this big deal of telling the guy, like, Hey, you know. We Jews, like, we don't do this. We don't go into Gentiles' houses. Even the, even though the guy was a proselyte, even though he was worshiping the God of the Israelites, the Israelites had had this sort of weird stigma where it was taboo for a Jew, especially a prominent Jew, like Paul is. He's considered very well-educated, very prominent Jew. They're letting him speak in the synagogue, right? And especially a teacher, it's sort of taboo for that kind of Jew to enter a house of a Gentile. So what he's doing here is he's making the statement of you are rejecting the word of God. And then he leaves the synagogue, goes right next door and he is going to this Gentile's house. And what God is doing is he's provoking the Jews to jealousy through Paul's words and his actions. 
both the rebuke and then what Paul does right after that is he's saying, you rejected the word of God, I'm now going to bring it to the Gentiles. And so he does that thing. And this is something that goes all the way back to like Deuteronomy. Paul later quotes it in his letter to the Romans. But God says, because you're going after other gods, because you're not listening to my word, you've provoked me to jealousy. And so I'm going to provoke you to jealousy by taking in the nations. I'm going to go to the Gentiles and you will be jealous. And But the whole point is, hopefully you'll come back to me. That's what God is trying to do. And that's what God is trying to do through Paul here. Paul is reasoning in the scriptures weeks on end to the Jews. They finally get sick of it. They're blaspheming him and the Bible and God. So Paul rebukes them with the scriptures. And that quoting of Ezekiel, like they know what that's from. And when he is saying that, he's basically calling them wicked, which is a a bold thing to say by saying like the blood's on your head. Because what Ezekiel said, it said, if you, if I tell you to warn the wicked and they don't do it, then the, the blood is on their head. So he's saying, you guys are wicked. And then he, he leaves and he goes to the Gentiles home right next door. And Paul is not acting brashly. He's not, again, acting out of anger. He's acting very scripturally and he's actually acting very lovingly by giving them that harsh warning saying, you're wicked. You're on your way to hell and it's on you. It's on you now. Uh, and then he leaves and Crispus, because of Paul's words and he sees Paul's actions, he repents, he's saved along with his whole household. They're all baptized and they believe in Jesus, which is like massive, like the leader of the synagogue of this area gets saved because of the rebuke of Paul. And then, what's that? If you know why the leader of the synagogue would be a Gentile... Because they're in- Crispus is not a Gentile. He's the leader of the synagogue. Oh, I thought you said that. Justice. Oh, justice. Justice is That's the Gentile. Is. So because he does, he says this thing. He goes to justice. Then Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, who is like the head of the Jews in that area, he gets saved. His household gets saved, and because of that, then a bunch of Corinthians hear about it, and then they start turning. They start becoming yeah. saved. And so this massive revival starts happening in uh, Corinthians. Verse 9 says, Now the Lord spoke to Paul in the night by a vision. Do not be afraid, but speak, and do not keep silent. For I am with you, and no one will attack you to hurt you, for I have many people in this city. So, man... God showing up to like give you a personal message, like that's a, that's a big deal. And as I was like thinking about this and praying about it, it actually reveals a lot about where Paul's at this warning or not, not warning, but this word from the Lord that comes to Paul, uh, Paul's afraid. And sometimes we kind of think that Paul was like this fearless guy, did whatever God told him to do, and he didn't care what was going to happen to him. If he was beaten or stoned or killed or whatever, he's just going to do it, and he had no fear. But it's okay to be afraid. Paul was, in this moment, you can tell he's afraid by Jesus showing up and saying, don't be afraid, right? It's okay to, it's actually like sane to have fear when you're doing this super dangerous stuff. Paul was afraid to speak. 
Uh, he was afraid that he was kind of on his own in this whole thing. He's afraid of, of being beaten again. Um, he's afraid that no one believes, right? And we can see all that just from the word of the Lord that comes to him. Because God shows up, meets Paul exactly where he's at, and he says, don't be afraid, right? Paul's afraid. He says, don't be afraid. Paul's afraid to speak. He says, speak. Like, don't keep silent. Paul's feeling like he's on his own, doesn't know how to do this thing. And Jesus says, I'm with you. I know you feel alone, but I'm, you're not. I'm here. And not only that, but like, I have people here. I have a lot of people here. There's a community, a godly community here, and no one will hurt you this time. So he, he gives Paul this massive word of encouragement. And what we see is Paul's fear of God outweighs the fear of man. So even though he has these fears, when he hears from the Lord, he does it because he fears God more. Jesus said, why do you fear man who can only hurt your body? And said, you should fear God who can destroy your body and your soul. It's like, oh, okay, yeah, yeah. Like, why am I afraid to say something meaningful and godly and quote the Bible to somebody because of what they think of me? Even if they hurt me, that's all they can do. Whereas God can destroy me forever and put me into eternal anguish. It's like, okay, I fear God more. I'm going to obey him. So... Don't let your fear rule you, whether it be fear of circumstances, fear of man, fear of what people think, fear of whatever. Don't let that fear rule you. Rather, fear God, obey what he says, and even if you're feeling afraid, ask God to meet you where you are to help you through that fear. Continuing in verse 11. And he, this is Paul, of course, uh, continued there a year and six months, teaching the word of God among them. Oh, yeah, again, they want to hear more. People are getting saved. There's there's this big conversion happening. So he stays. He makes them the priority. He stays for a year and a half. And it says, when Galio was proconsul of Achaia, we'll go with it, <laughs> the Jews, with one accord, rose up against Paul and brought him to the judgment seat. This sounds familiar. God just promised that no one's going to come after him and no one's going to hurt him this time. So you know Paul's like, probably like, okay, God, you said this wasn't going to happen. Here we go. Uh, but also, we do see that he continues with confidence, right? He continues a year and a half with these people, continuing to preach, continuing in boldness, this renewed boldness that he gets from God showing up, and God keeps his promise. God keeps his promise for a long time. This is probably a lot longer. He's been there for a long time, and finally people get all worked up. Um, also, we know because of Luke's little note here, this historical reference of this specific guy being the proconsul, of this specific place, we know that we are like right around 50 AD. So it's like 49 or 50 AD that this is happening. It's a very specific little historical note there. So that kind of puts in perspective of like, okay, now we kind of know what's happening. If you remember when we talked about the scriptures, the earliest manuscript of, of the Bible uh, came 40 years after the things happened. So we are like 
scripture that we have, the New Testament, is beginning to be written. We also know that Paul probably, in Corinth, wrote his first letter to the Thessalonians. So he's like writing scriptures, he's sending the letter, the letters get to the Thessalonians, they copy the letters, they're circulating them, so the Bible's starting to be formed in this time. And that's just a really cool thing to, to think about, like, what was Paul actually doing there? Yes, he's ministering, but he's also writing these letters, and he's, like, putting together these really rich spiritual truths, pulling them from the Old Testament, making sense with them, with what Jesus did, and kind of growing Christianity at, at, the, at the root level here. Verse 12 says, When Deliah was proconsul of Acheria, the Jews with one accord rose up against Paul and brought him to the judgment seat, saying, This fellow persuades men to worship God contrary to the law. And when Paul was about to open his mouth, Galio said to the Jews, If it were a matter of wrongdoing or wicked crimes, O Jews, there would be reason why I should bear with you. But if it is a question of words and names and your own law, look to it yourselves, for I do not want to be a judge of such matters. And he drove them from the judgment seat. Then all the Greeks took Sothenes, the ruler of the synagogue. So there's a new ruler of the synagogue because Crispus got saved. They set up this new guy. They take him. All the Greeks took this leader of the synagogue and they beat him before the judgment seat. But Galio took no notice of these things. So Paul remained a good while. Then he took leave of the brethren and sailed for Syria. And Priscilla and Aquila were with him. So we'll, we'll continue the story there, but here we see sort of a, an age-old anti-Semitism rising in Rome, right? We saw at the beginning that the ruler at the time cast all the Jews out of Rome. And now here, the Jews are like trying to do this thing, and not only does the, the basically the governor of the place say, I don't care what you have to say, but then he looks the other way as, as the ruler of the Jews are like getting beaten. So this anti-Semitism is starting to kick up. It did a couple of times throughout Roman history, but Who's beating so the Jews, the Greeks, the Greeks, oh. are the Jews. So that book, so the Jews come with their complaint, and then the Jews get beat up. Yeah. So the Jews bring Paul to say this guy needs to be punished. And the proconsul says, this is your own thing. I don't care about it. When it says they all, it says they all, I always just assumed it was the Jewish people who had been complaining about, about Paul. Why would they beat up their own? This says, then all the Greeks. Oh. So it's. In verse 17. In 17. Oh. So that's a little textual variant, but even like in the original language, it's pretty clear, like, who the the way Greek is written. Mm-hmm. It's normally, like, pretty darn accurate of who is actually being talked about. The way it... The, 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 the words can all be moved around, but the way that the the, the person who is being spoken about, the, mm-hmm. the way... There's, like, a certain way that they write the word that don't, no matter where it winds up in the sentence or in the paragraph... 
the way that that's written says that's who we're talking about. So it's pretty clear that the Greeks are not, they're kind of sick of the Jews. And again, there's like an anti-Semitism going on where Rome in, in general, and historically this is true in this time period, Rome in general was kind of over the Jews and they're like beating them. Like, like we saw in the beginning of the chapter, they're getting cast out of the city of Rome completely, like get out, which also side note kind of adds a lot of interesting dynamic when you read through Romans and you're reading Paul basically trying to play referee between the Greeks and the Jews, because for a long time, the Jews weren't even allowed to live in Rome. They come back. Now the Christians who are Greeks have sort of set up their own way of doing things. The Jews come back and there's this like butting of heads. So Paul's sort of trying to say, guys, like you're all Christians. We're all one family. Let's figure this out. And that's what Paul's doing in Romans. Um, but this is sort of what's historically happening is that the, the Jews are, are really getting the raw end of this deal here. But throughout all of this, God is keeping his word of safety true for Paul, right? He, he promised him, no one's going to hurt you. And he keeps that promise the entire time that Paul is in Corinth. And that's an amazing, awesome thing. And it's, it's one of those things that's like, yes, Paul is going to, he has seen hardship. He's going to see more hardship, but God made this promise when you're in Corinth, you'll be protected. I have a lot of people here. I have a community here and you're going to be safe. So God keeps that promise. And Paul eventually knows that he has to move on from there. He probably wishes he could stay there and, and hold on to that promise for a long time. But he knows that God's got work for him to do elsewhere. So he departs from Corinth and he sails to Syria, which is where we'll pick it up next week. But Paul is sort of, as, as we see, again, he's, he's sort of called to be the watchman of Corinth here. And we see that continue as he writes to the Corinthians over and over again. He's like taking care of them. He's still being their watchman. He's still using scripture for doctrine, reproof, correction, and instruction in righteousness. He's like, continues that because God did sort of set him up as, all right, you're the watchman. You're going to be the one who warns them. You're going to be the one who brings them doctrine, brings them truth, and uh, continues to watch out for their souls. So yeah, with that, we'll close in prayer and hang out a little more. Dear God, thank you for tonight and for this opportunity to continue in your word and just learn more about you and your heart and how you want us to watch out for others, God. I pray that we will not uh, fear man when you tell us to warn them and that we will take the warning in Ezekiel for ourselves seriously that if God tells us to warn the wicked that we don't back down from that um, and that we can have clean hands and hopefully bring more people into your your kingdom God so thank you for your word and for loving us and for loving the world so much that you would send Jesus to to die in our place that we can have a right relationship with you, God. So thank you for all this. I pray that you bless our fellowship tonight. And I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.